Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. And so next week and the following week, week three and four, we're going to be talking more and more about the bounded and fuzzy sets and contrasting them with the centered set. But I figured since this is a morning that we're celebrating baptisms, we're going to mostly just talk about what it means for us to be a church, for us to be people who are centered on Jesus. Some of the bounded and fuzzy stuff will come up as we contrast it with that, but we're really going to break that apart in weeks three and four because we want to have clear definitions of bounded, fuzzy, and centered. But today we're just going to talk about what it means to be a church that is centered on Jesus. And if you're taking notes, our core verse for this series is Galatians 4.19, where Paul says this, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He said, my children until I'm labor until Christ is formed in you. Our desire as a church is that Christ would be formed in you, that Christ would be formed in me, that Christ would be formed in us as a church, that we would be more and more like Jesus. So if you're taking notes today, the title of today's message is this, Centered Around Jesus, centered around Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at and talking about today because we don't want to be bounded where we're just, you know, kicking people out who don't look like us and think like us and act like us. But we also don't want to be fuzzy because we don't want to just be meeting and then say, why are we even doing this? Why are we getting together? I don't really need this. We want to be centered on Jesus and becoming more like Jesus and responding to Jesus's invitation to follow him. So here's a quick definition of what it means to be a centered church from Mark Baker, who wrote the book, Centered Set Church, which I'd highly recommend. He says this, in a centered church, Jesus is the centered focus. Therefore, the critical question is to whom do we offer worship and allegiance? That's the critical question. Who are we worshiping? Who are we following? In a centered model, we are following Jesus. In a bounded model, typically we're, we're following and we're just celebrating the rules. In a fuzzy model, we're just celebrating and we're following, oh, we just do whatever we want here. But in a centered model, we seek to follow Jesus above all else. And so this morning, it's going to be pretty quick because we want to get to these baptisms that we're celebrating. I just want to talk about four markers of a centered church. What does it mean for us to be a centered church where we're centered around Jesus, where we're moving towards him? And, and what does that look like? So the first thing is this, a, centered, a church centered around Jesus recognizes Jesus as Lord. This is the most important one, actually. The other three points after this are really just an outworking or fruit of this first point. If we are going to be centered around Jesus, then we recognize Jesus as Lord above all else. We submit to him as Lord. We seek to follow him. And Paul lays this out in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, when he says this. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We talked about this last week, how Jesus has fully rescued us. There's nothing more that we need to do. There's nothing more that we need to add on. He has fully rescued us. And he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He gave himself for us so that we could be rescued, so that we could experience new life, and so that we can become more like Christ. In this promise of eternal life, we recognize that that begins now, and we seek to become more and more like Jesus. That means that a church that is centered around Jesus, that recognizes Jesus as Lord, as we are moving towards Jesus, we should start to look a little more loving, a little more, you know, a little more kind, more understanding, more willing to listen to others. 
These are attributes that Jesus was constantly displaying as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A church that recognizes Jesus as Lord, we should become a group of people who listen better and love better, who bring hope and healing and life to others together just as Jesus did. A church centered around Jesus begins to look more and more like Jesus. So in this series, we're going to continuously give uh, application questions. Last, last week, we gave them all at the end of the message. This week, they're going to be dispersed throughout the message. And the application question for this point is this. Ask yourself this question. Who or what is the Lord of my life? Even if you're here today and you're like, I don't really know how I feel about this whole faith thing. I don't really know if I'm into that. I, I, you know, I'm just here to support someone getting baptized, but I'm still not sure. Ask, still ask yourself this question, because even if you're not into the whole religion thing, there is something that most likely is the Lord over your life. Whatever is Lord over your life is driving the majority of your decisions. Whatever is the Lord of your life is typically the thing that's anchored within you that, that, is, that is driving the decisions that you're making. And so, so for some of us, is Jesus really the Lord of our life? In a bounded group, oftentimes what becomes the Lord is the expectations of others. Am I living up to other people's standards so that I can stay in the group? In a fuzzy group, the Lord ends up being this, this central theme that brings them together of, we just don't like that bounded group anymore, and so we're going to do everything we can to not be like them. But in a centered model, Jesus becomes the Lord of all. And he is the one, and he is the one we follow, so we seek to have decisions that are based off of what he desires for us and the leading of his Holy Spirit within our lives. But what is the Lord of your life? What drives the majority of your decisions? Is it the approval of others? Is it seeking money? Is it status? What are you constantly trying to build up and you feel as if that is the anchor that is driving the decisions of your life? Just think about that. It's a good thing to think about. What is the Lord? Who is the Lord of my life? Who, is, who or what is, is warring for your heart and your mind and is driving your decisions? In a church that is centered on Jesus, we're not going to get this right every single time. We have to have humility here. But above all else, our desire should be that Jesus is Lord and therefore he is the one who drives and directs our decisions. He is over all things. Secondly, a church centered around Jesus embraces their true identity. A church centered around Jesus embraces their true identity. One of the passages that we're going to break apart in this series, I'm just going to give you a summary of today, is in Galatians chapter 2, where Peter starts hanging out with a group of people who are basically saying, hey, to be a Christian, you also have to be circumcised if you want to be like a good Christian. That's kind of what they're saying. They, they, were, they were in their old Jewish practices, and they're saying, hey, you got to do this. And Peter starts hanging out with this group of people who are throwing this extra burden on who are saying, hey, yeah, you know, if you're really serious, you're also going to get circumcised. And some guys are like, that's a little painful for an adult male. But anyways, like... That's what was happening. And Paul, who came along after Peter, ends up calling Peter out. It's like, what are you doing here? What are you thinking? But this is what bounded sets do. Bounded sets pull us down and make us start thinking that we have to do things that we don't always have to do to be loved by God. 
That we have to do things that, hey, it's in Christ that, that, that we are set free. It's in Christ that we are given a new identity. And so Paul corrects Peter and says, no, 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 no. You don't have to give in to that. And then Paul, Paul redirects Peter. As I said, we're going to look at that more closely. And then after that comes some of Paul's most famous words, maybe his most famous words in this entire book. I don't know if they're his most famous words in all the scriptures, but they're up there. This is like top five right here. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, which means I have laid down the old life. I have turned from sin, and just as Christ was crucified for the sins of the world, I I have now been crucified with Christ, and now it is no longer I who live, it is Christ now living within me. His identity is no longer in a bounded group or a fuzzy group trying to just keep up the group standards. His identity is wrapped up in Christ. And he says, Christ who loves identity is wrapped up in Christ. And he says, Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. His identity is found in the love of Christ and the love that Christ has for him. I heard someone say recently, uh, you know, the famous statement from, from Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Paul would look at that and say, I am loved, therefore I am. Paul's identity was completely wrapped up in this love of Christ, that he had been crucified with Christ, and now he's living a new life. And that's what we're going to celebrate here in a moment with baptism, as people go under the waters and come out again. It's this being identified with Christ and saying, I'm going to go through that, and I'm going through this in my real life as well, to let go of the old and embrace the new, to live in the new life that Christ has. Paul breaks us apart even more in Romans chapter 6 when he writes this. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. We let go of the old. We run away from sin so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Sin. When we live this crucified life, we then begin to live in the new resurrected life. See, so often we get wrapped up in Galatians 2 and we say, this is an invitation to die. And yes, it is. It's an invitation to die to ourselves, but it's an also an invitation to live. It's an invitation to live in the power and the life of the resurrection and to become more and more like Jesus, to live the life that you were intended to live to live the life that I've been intended to live. It's an invitation to die, but it's also an invitation to live. Within crucifixion in this Christian life implies that resurrection is just around the corner. As we lay down the old, we will experience the new. There's a new life in store for us. So as we lay down the old, there's a resurrection that comes from that. And our identity is found in the resurrection of Christ, that it is he who now lives within me. And because I am loved by him, I am known by him. And that's where our identity should should come from. That's where our identity can be shaped from in the security of being loved by Christ. A bounded group, what what happens a lot of times is in a bounded group, a, a person will kind of be at the top of the group and that person loves to keep people in the state of crucifixion. Well, you haven't done this and you haven't done that and you haven't done this and you haven't done that. And they get to be at the top and they love to keep putting people down. 
Paul says, no, no, no. Once you've been crucified with Christ and you've let go of the old, let him bring you into the new, into the resurrection. And sometimes what happens in the fuzzy group is the fuzzy group wants the benefits of resurrection without going through the process of crucifixion, without going through the process of letting go of the old, without going through the process of saying, there's some things that are dragging me down. There's some things that are sinful. There's some things that we must let go of. And we want to be defined and shaped and have our identity in Christ. We are loved. Therefore, we are in him. We are in Christ as he loved us. And we live this new, blossoming, resurrected life in him. Thirdly, a church centered around Jesus is unified. As we continue to grow as a church, my desire would be that we would be unified with other churches. We're not the only church out there. There are other churches who are furthering the gospel and, and working for the kingdom. We want to be unified with others. But we also want to be unified within our church. And division is one of those things. How does it so easily creep into the church where we get so upset with one another and we get on edge with one another and, and, and we lose patience with one another? And, and losing patience starts to turn into gossip. And then gossip starts to turn into, to, to, you know, can you believe this and believe that? And we can easily become so divided in the body of Christ. But we should be the people who are giving a testimony of unity to everyone around us. That even in our disagreements, even in our differences sometimes, we stand unified in Christ Jesus. We stand unified in Jesus as Lord. We stand unified in who Christ has shaped us and called us to be. In the book of Galatians, Paul outlines this as well, that there is no room for division and disunity in the body of Christ, but we are to be unified. He says this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now this would have really bothered, that last sentence would have really bothered some of the bounded people that Paul was dealing with who were saying, hey, you should also be circumcised. He's like, no, 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 it's not about that anymore. You are heirs according to the promise in Christ. We are united in Christ. We are made one in Christ. Whenever you find yourself in a group where you're saying, I think there could be more division here than unity, it may be time to start having some difficult conversations as what are we doing here? Because in Christ, we should be one. But division creeps in so easily. And, and we allow little things sometimes to get in the way. And don't get me wrong, there are some things that we, as Christ followers, we stand in. And we say, hey, this, this is who we are. This is who Christ has called us to be. This is what we believe. And, and yes, that could be a point of difference, but it doesn't always have to be a point of division. And just a few years ago, was in 2019, I was down in Texas with Kim, and we were at a church planting uh, seminar, church startup seminar. Here's how, you, here's how you start a church, a new story. Obviously, we had not started yet, and we were getting some training and learning all these different things, and we were with a group of pastors. And, and we were in a discussion with these pastors and we were over, the, over the course of a week, and one of the discussions, we were talking about uh, 
egalitarian church structures versus complementarian church structures. And some of you might be saying, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Okay, an egalitarian church structure basically comes from the perspective that, uh, that women can be pastors and leaders and elders within the church. A complementarian structure would say those roles are reserved for men. And there were people there in this group who were both sides of the aisle. I, I was more, I'm more so in the egalitarian group. Obviously, Kim spoke here before. Joy leads worship. And so, so we, we have more, I had more of that persuasion, but I'm open to having discussions and talking with other people. And so we're all in this group and we're talking and we're talking about, you know, some of the scriptures that we think support egalitarian views. And we were talking about some of the scriptures that we think support complementarian views. There was, it was really just a gentle, kind, I thought, conversation. But then there was one guy in the group who was complementarian. I think he was more than complementarian. I think he was like patriarchal. Like this guy, you started seeing the red in his face. Nobody was angry. Nobody was worked up. And he was bringing tension into the room. And we were all just having a general conversation, a group of pastors. Now, I was in Texas, so maybe I should have expected this. But anyway, I'm kidding. But so you could see the anger in his face. My one buddy looks at me and said, I think I'm going to leave the room now because this is just, you would have thought that he, would, he was overhearing us planning a murder or something horrible like that with the anger in this. And this guy was like in his 30s as well. I was like, dude, lighten up, man. Just lighten up a little bit. You see this differently than us. It's okay. It's okay. But the anger, the frustration, we ended up having to stop the conversation and just move on. It's like, isn't that sad? That's what happens in the body of Christ. When we have disagreements over things like that, that people just get so worked up that they can't even be in the presence of other people. They just bring such tension and anger and frustration. And don't get me wrong. There are things that we are passionate about sometimes. There are things that come, I get that. But Paul, Paul gives instructions here that it's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. So he's saying to this group of people, we are all one in Christ. And I think that he'd be saying the same thing today if he were writing a, church, a letter to the Church of the United States of America, like, guys, stop being so divided. Work together in your weaknesses to make one another better and become one in Christ. When we live out unity within the church, whether it's just within New Story Church or within the greater body of Christ, we are actually living in the reality of a prayer that Jesus prayed. We are living within the vision and desire of Jesus because Jesus prayed that his church would be one. He said this in John chapter 17 as he was praying. He said, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He said that they may be one. This was the prayer of Jesus. So a church that is centered around Jesus, yes, we might have disagreements sometimes. Yes, we might have difficult conversations, which I'm going to talk about more in just a moment. But ultimately, we are one in Christ. And when we walk as one in Christ, we are fulfilling and walking within a prayer and desire of Jesus. So a church centered around Jesus recognizes Jesus as Lord. A church centered around Jesus finds their true identity in Christ. We are censored in him. And a church centered around Jesus works and fights for unity. We will be unified. And lastly, well, actually, no, I have an application question here for you. How can you contribute to unity in the church? How can you contribute to unity? Do you know that sometimes to get to a spot of unity, you have to have some difficult conversations. You might have to confront some things. 
You might have to, but that will then hopefully bring unity and healing. Sometimes we like a false sense of unity where we just smile to people's faces and then say horrible things about them behind their back. That's not unity. (laughs) That's not unity. To have true unity, we have to have difficult conversations sometimes to confront things. Lastly, a church centered around Jesus walks in freedom. As we recognize Jesus as Lord, and we find our identity in him and, and all these, and we're moving towards Christ, we will find freedom that is in Christ alone. Paul lays this out for us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, as he's getting to the end of his letter. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm in the freedom of Christ and don't be subject to the yoke of slavery. This yoke of slavery could have been in his mindset, this bounded view of, oh, you got to be circumcised to be a Christ follower and you got to keep this law and you got to keep that law. He's like, no, 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 no. You've been set free in Christ. But then in Galatians 5, he also goes on to address the works of the flesh, the ways of the world. Those are things that also hold us down. Sin will hold us down. Sin will keep us back and it'll be like a yoke of slavery. But to be truly free is to be found in and to be loved by Christ. To be truly free is to be found in Christ. I'm going to grab something. I'm going to be out of the camera shot for just a second, but this is going to help illustrate things a little bit more here. And it's going to be silly at first, but that's okay. I brought my Batman mask, which some of you might be wondering, why do you have a Batman mask? But I do have one. I had one in middle school, but it was confiscated because apparently you're not supposed to wear Batman masks in the hallways in middle school. So uh, Frederick County Middle was not a fan of that. My friend Tanner, though, he got, we, were, we had an award ceremony for the band in the middle of the day. I don't know why we had an award ceremony for the band in the middle of the day. And they called some kid's name up that was not Tanner and he wore the Batman mask and walked on stage and just waved the entire school. It was pretty funny. But, uh, but anyways, I still have my Batman mask. And what what... What bounded groups and fuzzy groups will sometimes do is you get to a spot where you feel like you have to wear a mask just to fit in with the expectations of the group. Like, okay, in this bounded group, we do this, we don't do that. We do this, we don't do that. We do this, we don't do that. And it's so driven by shame and guilt that you're thinking, I got to wear this mask and be somebody that I'm not actually. That I got to be somebody that, that this group thinks that I am because if I were to let them know who I truly am, they would kick me out of the group. That's, what a bounded, that's the kind of culture that a bounded group can create. And it'll start to happen at first in a fuzzy group. You don't think it's happening. But then when you start, to, when you start to wear your mask in the fuzzy group and you're like, oh, wait, if I speak up and challenge people in this group, they might kick me out because we don't really challenge one another in this group. So you know what? I'm going to put my mask on. I'm just going to go along with the group. And I don't really, you know, I don't like that we're in this right now, but, but I'm just going to keep the mask on. But what happens is when we find true freedom in Christ, we are set free to take the mask off. We no longer have to have the burden of wearing the mask around and trying to keep up the expectation of this group or that group or this person or that person, but we are truly free in Christ. And if we are walking with others who are free in Christ, then we should be able to be honest with them about our failures and our victories. If we are free in Christ and you are free in Christ, then you should allow others to create a space for them where they don't feel like they have to wear a mask when they're around you. When we have found true freedom in him, we don't have to wear the mask to stay in or stay out of the group. We can just take the mask off and say, hey, here's where I'm at right now. Here are some great things that God is doing. Here are some things that I've been struggling in. And the group will continue to work together as we sharpen one another and become more and more like Christ. 
And that's what it means to find freedom in him, to say, you know what? I'm just gonna be who he's called me to be. And in those moments where I'm not doing what, I'm just, I gotta be honest with you, I gotta let you know. And I, I need to address attention here as well. I'm gonna put this away because I don't need to be carrying this around for the rest of the message. But uh, attention that I think comes up sometimes is we're trying to figure out how can we become more like Jesus together and not create a space where people have to wear masks but also have accountability? How do you have both? Because it feels like there's, and once again, we're going to continue to unpack this, but there's just one little thing I want to address this week. Because I I think we've, we've started to believe a lie that correction and acceptance cannot coexist with one another. That if somebody corrects you, then they no longer accept you. We've started to believe this lie that correction and acceptance cannot coexist. But I, I want to let some people know, write this down, that correction can be friends with acceptance. They can be friends with one another. They can get along. But it actually requires work on both ends. You see, there are some people you love to correct other people. You just got to admit it. You love to correct other people. You got to ask yourself, why do I love correcting other people? Why is it? Why do you love correcting other people? So there's some people you just love to let people know what you know you're doing right and what they're doing wrong. Just love to correct other people. If your desire to correct is coming from a place of I am trying to build myself up to show how right I am and put others down to show them how wrong they are, that is the type of correction that will deter acceptance. That is the type of correction that is bounded. That is not accountability. That is not godly correction. Godly correction comes into a conversation. Whenever I go into a conversation where I know that I might have to correct somebody, I try to just quote over and over again the statement of Jesus of, hey, make sure that you take this, the log out of your own eye before you look for the speck in your brother's eye. Just to remind myself that like, hey, I don't want to get too up on my high horse here to think that I'm doing something. They're just, so always keep that in mind, that before you get so wrapped up in the, in the speck in your brother's eye, remember the log in your own. You can read about that in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but sometimes correction is necessary. And so So if you find yourself in a spot where you're like, I really want to correct somebody here. I want to direct them because I feel like they're not moving towards the cross. I feel like they're moving away from the cross, but you want to continue to have this heart of acceptance to bring them in. It must, correction must come from a place of desiring restoration for the other person, not putting them down so that they feel so much shame and guilt that they might be motivated to change for a day or two. But a true heart of correction, godly correction comes from a heart of desiring restoration for the other and recognizing that you need restoration just as much as they do. That's where godly correction comes from. That's where Christ-like correction comes from, of desiring restoration for the other. Sometimes as Christians, we've had a tendency to go and correct somebody because they're bothering us and then we just leave them out to dry to go figure it out on their own. That's not godly correction. Godly correction says, I'm coming alongside of you. I want to try to correct this and work through this with you. And guess what? I'm staying with you in this. I'm walking with you through this every step of the way. We are going to go through this together. And the desire is restoration. And if you see something in me, let me know. But then on the other end, in receiving correction, we can't be so... Sometimes this happens in the fuzzy groups. We become bounded with how we'll receive correction. We start holding on to some things in our life and saying, hey, you know what? 
I'm not going to let anybody tell me that they can correct me on that. They can correct me on everything else, but there's this one thing that I'm holding on to, and nobody can correct me on that. In fact, if they try to correct me, they're no longer accepting me. You cannot correct me on this. There's just this one little thing you might be holding on to. I don't know what it is, but nobody can correct you on that. If you have that heart, and there's this one thing or a few things that nobody can correct you on, and as soon as somebody tries to correct you on it, you say, oh, you're not accepting me anymore. If that's your heart with some things, ask yourself this question. Is Jesus really the Lord over your relationships, or are you trying to be the Lord over the relationship? Are you trying to say, this is how this is going to work, and I'm going to tell you what you can and can't say to me? Sometimes when someone's correcting you, it's actually a compliment because they're saying, I think so highly of you that I see more for you. And I want to walk with you through this. It comes, correction and acceptance can be friends, but it requires investment from both ends to grow together. But we've, we've given into this distorted view of freedom that it's to do what we want when we want. And to be truly free in Christ says, I'm going to be open with other followers of Christ so that we can grow together. Dr. Scott McKnight describes freedom this way. He says, freedom is not being turned free to be whatever we want. That is egocentrism. Nor is it some kind of self-discovery or self-authentication. That too is egocentrism. Rather, it is being incorporated into the life of God, which he mediates to us through Christ and allows us to enjoy in the spirit. True freedom is to be found in Christ and to be wrapped up in the love of Christ. Not just whatever I want, whenever I want, but it's to be found in the love of Jesus. Now we're going to continue to break this down together. Here's some application questions for this. When have you blurred the lines in your life between correction and acceptance? Maybe you're the one who loves being corrected. Maybe you're the one who has a difficult time being corrected. When have you blurred the lines between correction and acceptance? When have I done that? Because it definitely happens to me often. Like, how dare you correct me on that? You know? <laughs> when, when have you blurred the lines? Secondly, where does Christ want you to experience freedom in your life? Where has something been holding you down? Someone has been holding you down. And Christ is saying, draw close to my love and allow him to set you free today. Think about that. Pray about that. We are going to continue to work through this together to become a church that is centered on Jesus. A church that is centered on Jesus above all else will recognize Jesus as Lord. And in recognizing him as Lord, we'll continue to see the fruit of that working in and through every single one of our lives. We're all at different spots. We all move at a different pace. But together, I want to invite every one of you to move towards the cross and become more and more like Jesus.